Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be sharing God's word with you. And as you know, over the past couple of weeks, we've been discussing the Apostles' Creed. And I think it's a good thing if we start. Why don't we uh, start off by confessing the Creed together as a first step? Uh, Tim is the second slide, I think. I'll just stand to one side. Can we just can we do that together? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Today we will be discussing the second last portion, if I can call it that, which is that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And uh, I want to address four questions with you. The first is, what is sin? So if we define it, um, how does sin originate? Where does it come from? Then what are the consequences of sin? And lastly, how does forgiveness work? Right? So. It's not easy to talk about sin because sin is like taxes and death, you know, it's not a pleasant subject. And we don't really want to think about ourselves as bad or evil. But quite early on in God's Word, we begin to introduced to the concept of sin. In fact, in Genesis 3, uh, we have a Satan entering this, this scene where he persuades the first people on earth to rebel against God. And so, in uh, chapter 3, we see the devil using a tactic that he's been using uh, all along. He started with a tactic in paradise, and he still uses that tactic today, right? So, he, he first in introduces some uh, doubt, and he says, did God really say? He did exactly the same when he, uh, when he tempted Jesus in the desert. And he said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God... The second thing he did in his discussion with Eve is he then exaggerates the prohibition. He says, did God really say that you may not eat of any of the trees? And we know it's not true. It was one prohibition. And then, of course, he downplays the consequences. And Eve said, but um, if we disobedient, we'll die. He said, surely you won't die. Which we know was untrue. It's dead wrong. In fact, when Adam and Eve transgressed, in that way, they died a spiritual death. So, the disobedience stems in a way from us uh, trying to be the master of our own destiny. To become like God, ultimately to be God. In a nutshell, it relates to conduct which falls outside of God's will for us. So, just think about it for the moment. Everything we do is either aligned to what God wants for, for us in our lives, in other words, what would be pleasing to him. And in our own interest, because he created us, he knows us inside and out, he always wants the best for us. Or it's not aligned. Or perhaps even misaligned. Now we're not saying that everything that's misaligned 
is necessarily sinful. But if we're on the wrong track in terms of our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, it most certainly crystallizes into sinful behavior, which by default would displease uh, God and be classifiable as sin. The motivation to become like God, to put something in God's place, as the ultimate focus of worship, even ourselves, epitomizes sin. So call to mind God's first commandment in Exodus 20 verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Other gods can be anything, right? Possessions, desires, goals, even people that we treat as more important than the true God. And this was emphasized by Jesus when he answered a question from a Pharisee uh, in Matthew 22, verse 37. The Pharisee said, so what is the most important commandment? And Jesus' answer was, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Sin, therefore, stems from putting other things, people, ideas, ideals, even ourselves, center stage. In other words, when we start controlling our own lives and our destiny to the exclusion of God. So where does sin come from or uh, originate? It primarily comes from us yielding to the temptation of the world. In other words, when we decide not to yield to God's sovereign plan and guidance for our lives, and then by default, we forego His protection. The Apostle Paul gives us great guidelines in Ephesians 6. So if you've got your devices, you want to keep it open there. In Ephesians 6, there from verse 12. Uh, it should be on the screen as well. Here we go. Right. Am I a little bit in the way? Can you guys see? All right. Okay. So what did he say in Ephesians? He says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So for Paul's first piece of advice, right, is that our struggle is not, uh, sorry, his first piece of advice is to stand firm with a belt of truth around our waist. And we know the ultimate truth is Jesus. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That is Jesus in us, our hope of glory. You see, when Jesus comes to live within us by his Holy Spirit, he permeates our being, and he per it permeates and he cleans, cleanses up, cleans us up from the inside out. He sanctifies our soul, body, soul, spirit, to his glory. And he makes it possible for us to bear the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, and peace, and joy, and patience, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and goodness, and self-control. Galatians 5.24 those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. In the absence of Christ in us, we are vulnerable and ultimately will be overcome by the world and its empty promises. Then Paul goes from there, talking about the belt of truth, and he says, but you've got to put on the helmet of salvation. You see, without the helmet of salvation, we're exposed to the world and its lies and deception. So instead of being able to take every thought captive and put that under the jurisdiction of Jesus, we're being held captive. Right? We fall prey to the forces of darkness. And quite rapidly, we know that thoughts lead to feelings, and feelings lead to action. And if I'm outside the will of God, I'm in trouble. 
it's totally impossible to persevere with a quest for just thinking good thoughts when our minds are totally exposed to ungodly thoughts, opinions, and suggestions. And then Paul talks about the breastplate of righteousness. You see, our hearts, we're in a relationship with, with God through Jesus by the power of His Spirit. Our only claim to righteousness is through Jesus, who granted us through His death and resurrection a clean slate to operate on. Without the protection of the breastplate, which comes through a loving relationship with Jesus, we're bound to be swayed by the flavor of the month influences and the riding emotional roller coaster. Remember that God promised us a heart of flesh when we returned and accept the saving grace of Jesus. Ultimately, this is a heart influence we should rather say governed and protected by Jesus through His Holy Spirit. But I want us to, to really grab onto that this morning. We are in a war zone, right? And if you venture into a war zone, without protection. You easy prey. Right? This is the protection that, that, that Paul is talking about, which is absolutely vital. He then talks about the importance of being able to hold up the shield of faith with which to extinguish the arrows of the evil one. Now here's the message, right? We may have the belt of truth. We have Jesus, right? We've got a helmet of salvation. We've got the breastplate of righteousness, but the arrows will come. Right? One thing that, that Satan does not do, he doesn't give up. Okay? They will come. So, earthly man-made shields, they fade, they break up over time, but faith in Christ, by His grace, endures. And it's strengthened by us yielding more and more and more to the infusion of God's Spirit. In our weakness, God's strength comes through. And then Paul touches on the only piece of armor which is not defensive in nature and with which we can attack. And that's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Consider for a moment how Jesus demolished the devil's advances when he was tempted in the desert by quoting the Word of God. It is written, right? In Matthew 4, verse 3, so here's Satan. He says, if you are the Son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him in verse 4, he quotes from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. It's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then, what does the wily Satan do? He starts quoting from Scripture. So he, he takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple, and he says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And so Satan quotes from Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike against the stone. But Jesus is not perturbed, you see, because he wields the sword of the Spirit in truth. Not like spinning the Bible like Satan to, uh, to favor his own lies. So Jesus answered him, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. He says, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Without God's living word as part of our armor, we're basically on the defense all the time. And if we happen to be running thin on defenses, well, we're in trouble, right? Peter warns in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And then lastly, Paul speaks about our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So under God's protection, with our eyes on Jesus, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, our feet are more likely to head towards the light than towards darkness. 
On the battlefield of the soul, we will be sure-footed and vigilant. Read this news. How wonderful if we can fulfill Jesus' call in that way. Matthew 28. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. James gives us, James gives us confidence in James 4, 7. He says, resist the devil and you will flee from him. You see, Satan is crafty and wily, but he's a coward. You could invert each and every characteristic which our Lord Jesus lived and displayed when you characterized the devil. Christ wants to give us eternal peace. Satan is gunning for eternal damnation. Where Jesus epitomizes agape love, the devil breathes discord and hate. Just as Christ epitomizes goodness and beauty, Satan epitomizes depravity. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Satan is the pathway to hell. The father of lies and the promoter of eternal death. The contrast between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness could not be more clear. Let's talk briefly about the consequences of sin. So as we mentioned before, Satan tried to persuade the first human beings that there would be no consequences should they rebel against God. But we know this is not so. They fall into sin to feelings of guilt and shame, broken relationship with their maker, alienation from God, and tragically spiritual death. So sin is poisonous, it's pervasive, pollutes, causes a partition between us and God. James writes in James 1, 14 and 15, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Sin becomes a habit, or even an addiction. And one sin, I love it how the cock just reinforces some stuff. Right? <laughs> one sin leads to another sin, right? So here there was, so there was David who committed adultery. And then, and then he was prompted to commit murder, to cover the adultery. You can see how that slippery slope uh, works. So, untreated sin is like a terminal cancer. It will spread, metastasize, cause havoc, ultimately take control. On the battlefield of the soul, nothing escapes the clutches of untreated and unrepented sin. If we wander around in the domain of darkness, right, without the protection of God's armor, no measure of self-help books and talks and psychiatrists and medication will be enough to keep us on the straight and narrow. We know that the world around us is very messy and confused in the extreme. When people lose their way and they fall prey to an age of relativism, without Jesus there is no foundation for truth. Without objective moral values which are grounded in Jesus, everything becomes relative. The net result being, if it works for you, it's okay. Be your truth. Nothing can be further from the truth. In the absence of the frame of reference and stability which faith in Jesus brings, people flounder. They try to find ultimate meaning, meaning, meaning in the moment, but it's an exercise in futility. Without the Trinity, we've spoken about that now, within the context of the creed, God the Father, Jesus our Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit, the world is in trouble. And so, so the consequences of sin go way beyond individual lives. The most dangerous aspect about the unrepentant sin is it builds up a partition between us and God, a seeding of sorts. We feel alienated, we feel isolated from God. 
and it feels he's absent and unreachable. And this is the wages of sin, which Paul talks about in Romans 6.23. Ultimately, sin, unrepentant sin, makes it impossible to bear the fruit of God's Holy Spirit. It's impossible to really love, right? It's impossible to really enjoy peace, right? quite difficult to be gentle, to be good, to be faithful, and to have self-control. Now a strategy that's not going to work is to punch a hole in the ceiling, just poke one hand through and say, but I just need interim relief here from God, you know, until I can return to my previous ways. You see, you can't be in darkness and in light at the same time. And where Christ is, there is no darkness. <coughs> Let us discuss how forgiveness works. We need forgiveness from God for our sin, and there's only one being who can forgive, and that is Jesus. The reason we, we may ask for forgiveness is that God's wrath has been satisfied. Jesus paid the penalty in full. Thank you, Lord. He ransomed us and became our substitute on the cross. Do we need forgiveness? You bet. Paul writes in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, here's, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, he says. So if the Apostle Paul described himself as the ultimate sinner, how can I even be, think, be thinking or beginning to think that I'm without sin? Right? But here's the thing, forgiveness from Jesus happens in two stages. The first is where I step out of darkness into the light, by God's grace. I open up my heart to our one and only Savior, when I embrace His grace, I repent, I ask for, and I receive forgiveness, and I become a recipient of His unmerited mercy. In that sense, forgiveness is total, past, present, present, and by implication, future. According to Jesus' promise, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us, and I become a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom. I would like to share with you uh, Ephesians uh, 2. I think it's on the slide as well. That just contextualizes everything that we, we are discussing around this. If we can read, I, I just want to read that with you while you follow either on the screen or, or uh, your devices. That will be great. So, Ephesians 2, as from verse 1, we read the first 10 verses. <clears throat> as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly arms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. <coughs> For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, it is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So does this mean that we don't sin anymore? No. But it does mean that I'm on the path of sanctification by God's Holy Spirit. And when I do sin, that the Holy Spirit convicts and convinces me to repent and turn away from sin. You know, compare this to being adopted, right? If, if you were an orphan, 
when you adopted into a loving family and you mess up, so what happens? They send you back to the orphanage? No ways. Because there would be consequences. But your adoptive parents are not going to love you any less to send you back. Right? We've been adopted into Christ's household, into his family. Right? So we do mess up from time to time. There's nobody in this room sitting here that can raise his or her hand today and say you, you, you haven't messed up after you have been saved. So as Christ followers, we're not, we're not of this world, but we're in the world. Because you can't be a dual passport holder. You can't say, well, I want a passport of light and of darkness. And I'll just use it at my, at my discretion. Paul's quite clear, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him, in him we might become the righteousness of God. So forgiveness is all-encompassing. There's no half-measured forgiveness. It's not just a band-aid or a spare tire that I can just put on before I return to my old ways. It implies a 180-degree turn. So in Romans 6, Paul, Paul's in this case, shall we go on sinning so the grace may increase? By no means, we die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then, tw verses 12 to 14, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. But rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. Because you are not under the law but under grace. You've been set, in verse 18, you've been set free from sin. And you've become slaves to righteousness. Wonderful consolation in Romans 8, verse 1 and 2. There is now no condemnation those who are in Jesus Christ. Because through Jesus and by the power of His Holy Spirit, we've been set free. And we are being strengthened to live according to the Spirit. So Jesus illustrated this beautifully. We had, it was written up in John 13. Before Passover, the evening at supper, so Jesus starts to wash His disciples' feet. So He gets to Peter, and Peter says to Him, Jesus, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus says, you won't understand it now, but you'll understand it later. And He says, no, you'll never wash my feet. And then Jesus says, but you will have no part of me. But he says, but then also wash my hands and my head. And then Jesus said to him, it's not necessary, right? The person has had a bath, his body is clean. But you can wash his feet, right? So this means that once we are saved, we don't need to be saved and saved again and again repetitively. We are wearing the helmet of salvation. We have the breastplate of righteousness in our relationship with, with the Father. We are holding the shield of faith which is anchored in Jesus. But, although we become heavenly citizens, our feet are still walking the pavements of life and we pick up dirt. All of us do lose our way from time to time. That's why we need cleansing and we ask for forgiveness. As Jesus instructed his disciples on how to pray, Luke 11.4, Forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And that's the flip side of the coin, right? Jesus was very serious about us having to forgive others. When Peter asked him in Matthew 18, he says, How many times do we need to forgive? Up to seven times. And Jesus said, I tell you, not seven, but 77. The core message, folks, and I want to close with this, is let us yield to God's Holy Spirit 
that he might work in us and give life in all its fullness to our whole being, our body, our soul, and spirit to his glory. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Let us pray. Thank you, merciful God, for creating us, uh, for giving us life, Father, for redeeming us by your precious blood on the cross, and for sanctifying us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for your amazing grace, who saved the wretch like me. Thank you, Lord, for reassuring us of your all-encompassing love, despite our iniquities and shortcomings. Thank you for the confirmation that we can have life and experience the blessings of the fruits of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, please continue to make us beacons of light in a dark world. Help us be conduits of your love and hope to those who are far less privileged than us. We pray, Lord, please forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen.